We're going to be in several passages of Scripture this morning, and uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, Romans, and the Gospel of Mark. Today is when we start thinking about resolutions. Now, we don't keep them, we just think about them. Uh, You know, we're going to exercise, so we get that new Bowflex takes 28 of our neighbors to bring it into the house. Really good to hang your clothes on because you never use it as the Bowflex. You look at the picture of the guy on the box, you say, that, that could be me in a month. It won't ever be you. You just might as well just get over it. It's, it's not going to be you. And then we're going we're gonna to diet until somebody brings a cobbler or a pecan pie, or a cheesecake to your house, and all of a sudden you sin so that grace may abound. And, and you make all kind of resolutions of things we're going to do better. And typically we don't keep them. But what if we made one resolution this year, and that resolution was to listen to God and to do what he says? Whether you are in better shape, whether you lose weight, whether you've got more of this or that or the other, the end of the day is if we will listen to God, this year will be better. You'll have a better year. You'll have a better attitude. You'll have a better focus if we resolve to listen to God. To Whatever God says, we'll do it. However he speaks to us, we'll respond to him. Uh, It has been said, there are two quotes that I want you to see as we begin this new series, uh, Kingdom Giving. It has been said that the way a man thinks about his money will determine the way he thinks about God. The way a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl thinks about their money will determine the way they think about God. But I want to tell you what is equally true, and that is that the way we think about God will determine the way we think about money. Because the Bible says that you can't have two masters, God and mammon. That one or the other is going to control us. And for many in this world, mammon controls them. And you don't have to have a lot of it. You can be very poor and be obsessed with mammon, with money, with material things. I don't know how many times I've gone to pump gas at a gas station and seen somebody in a broken down, beat up car that looks like it's ready for the junkyard go in and start counting out change to buy a lottery ticket hoping that their life will change. Most of those people are not going to win. You probably have a better chance of getting hit by a meteorite than you do winning the lottery. But you just go to a counter and you think this is it. You know what the lottery is? The lottery is a simple way of saying, I have no trust in God to meet the needs in my life. So I'm going to trust people that are gambling away their children's food, their children's education, their health and their hope on a system that is rigged for the majority to lose. It's a pyramid scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. Oh yeah, somebody's going to win $150 million. Everybody help them win $150 million. And so we buy these lies that we can get rich quick, we can get rich without working for it, 
and yet God set up a system that said the way you make money is you work. You work for it. And we've set up a system where when you die, you leave your inheritance to your kids so that all that you work to save for, they squander in a matter of 18 months. The average baby boomer spent their parents' entire inheritance in 18 months after they died. They went and bought a bigger house, a better car, they bought a boat, and they squandered what their parents took 50 years to save up. So when we have this idea that money is going to make us happy, ask the baby booter generation, they're not happy. And they inherited trillions of dollars. And they're not happy. They just got more stuff, but they're not happy. I know, because I'm a baby boomer, and most of the people I know my age are not happy. And so here we find ourselves at the beginning of the year, are we resolved to listen to God and to what he says in the area of stuff and things? Because what he says is eternal. God doesn't speak just random thoughts. He doesn't just throw an idea out every now and then. When he speaks about finances and about wealth and about materialism and about giving and about honoring, he, he speaks truth, and this truth is eternal. You, you cannot look through the Bible without seeing stories of what money does and materialism does to people. Lot and Abraham's herdsmen began to argue over the flocks, and so they had to divide up the family because they couldn't get along because of the flocks, the blessings that God had given them. Esau sold his birthright. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. Israel plundered Egypt when they left during the Exodus and then took the wealth and melted it down and turned it into a golden calf and worshipped it. Ruth and Naomi didn't have any money, but they found favor with Boaz. David was a poor shepherd, but he became a wealthy king. Ananias and Sapphira died because they lied in church about their giving. There's, there was an interesting lesson for an early church. You know, so, okay, uh, you know, let's talk about how much you give. Well, Barnabas, he gave his all. God bless you, Barnabas. Ananias and Sapphira, how about you? Oh, man, we sold it. We, we gave everything. Bam, they died. I mean, they had, a, they had a funeral right in the middle of the worship service because two people lied. I'm convinced that we could raise giving if just everybody that lied about their giving died in one service. I mean, just think about it. If, if God struck down everybody in every church in America that lied about their giving, just imagine the difference in church attendance next week. But I guarantee you people be going, where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? Got to get my wallet. Get the checkbook. I got to go. I gotta get. God's serious about this. Hey, you know what? God is as serious about it right now in 2017 as he was with Ananias and Sapphira. You know why? Because lying is a denial of truth. It's a denial of faith. It's a denial of obedience to God and what he told us to do. And he said to the church, you better learn to trust me because tough days are coming. And so he gave an example. God by nature is a God of giving. He gave the law. He gave the land. He gave them deliverance from Egypt. He gave them a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He gave them manna for 40 years in the wilderness. He gave them the land of promise. 13 times in Deuteronomy it says, which the Lord your God is giving you. Everything Israel got, they got as a gift from God. Joshua 
They captured every city and never had a defeat except one. That's because Achan stole the first fruits of the capture of Jericho. And he went and he hid it in his tent. And they went out to a little town of Ai, which would make Smithville look like a metropolitan community. And that little town defeated the nation of Israel because one man stole what God said belonged to God. God takes serious our giving. And that was the only defeat that they had. God gave them plans for the tabernacle, for the temple, for the feasts, for the festivals, for the sacrifices, for the offerings. God gave them provisions in the wilderness of food and he gave them crops in the promised land. You'll never go anywhere in this world and see crops that are so abundant like you see in the nation of Israel today. All around them are nations that can't figure out how to grow weeds. But Israel can figure out how to grow grapefruits that look like the size of cantaloupes. Why? God prospered that land. God has blessed that land in a way like no other. He gave them those blessings. He gave them prophets to guide them into truth. He gave us Christ, salvation, the Holy Spirit to live within us. He gave us the church, a family of faith where we gather together to worship him and to honor his name. The missionary effort of the church in the first century was all because of giving people the expansion of the gospel where it was taken to the known world in less than two generations happened because people gave. God by nature is giving, so his people should be by nature giving. You see, the truth of God can't be negotiated or watered down. Now, here's, here's what we do in America. We, in America, we have a saying, and I'm sure they have it in other places, that time is money. Time is money. But giving time is not the same as giving money. You see, you can't say, well, I serve so I don't have to give. Or I give so I don't have to serve. I'll pay somebody to do something at the church so I don't have to do it. You see, it, it's not like uh, I teach so I don't have to give, or I give so I don't have to teach. It's not a silo. God has given us these truths in a context of understanding that giving is beyond the tithe and before the tithe. It happened 400 years before the tithe. So tithing and giving is not about keeping the law. It's about obedience. It's about obeying what God says about how we're to use money. Now let me ask you something. The God who created the universe put every star in its place, every planet in its place, the sun at the right distance from the earth so that we can survive, whether Al Gore thinks we can or not. Uh, all the planets spinning, the earth tilted at the right angle, spinning around 365 days, all the things that are going on, God organized all of that and we depend on every breath and the ability to stand up and lay down and gravity to work and life to function and nature to reproduce so that we can eat and air for us to breathe. All of that God put into existence and we take it for granted and we use it every day and then we come to money and say, I don't know if I can trust God with that. 
By the way, you're trusting God for your breath. Why can't you trust God with your resources? Because he gives the next breath. And so here we find ourselves asking a question, what is God asking for? That maybe the better way to ask that is, what are you asking for? Are you asking for answers to prayer? Are you answer, asking for God's blessings? Are you asking for God to show himself strong in your behalf and in your family? What, what are you asking God for? And so let me ask you to put yourself in a situation. If, I, if I'm going to God and I'm saying, God, I want you to answer my prayers. Here's my prayers. Here's my list. I want you to answer my prayers. God, I want you to meet our needs. God, I want you to take care of my health. God, I want you to watch over this, and I want you to give me wisdom. And then during the night, you slip into God's bedroom and you steal his wallet. Why should he do any of that? So he's a God of grace, but he's also a holy God, and he will not be mocked. So if I'm stealing from God, I shouldn't ask God for blessings. And so when we ask God to give us resources and when we ask God to give us blessings, then God says, well, you've already stolen some. How am I going to bless that? You see, God's not a beggar with a bucket on the side of the road saying, hey, could you loan me a dollar today? God is a savior on the side of the road with two outstretched hands with nail scars in them, and he's saying, what is it about this you don't understand? How could you pass me by? How could you not give? How could you not invest yourself? How could you not serve in light of all that I have done for you? Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, Romans 12 says God's not asking for my money. He's asking for me. The problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. You know, we were to present ourselves a living sacrifice, not just our wallet, not just our time, us. God wants, us to, wants to have us, and if I've resolved myself to listen to God, then no area of my life is off limits, whether it's my time, my service, my energy, my talents, my tithe, whatever it is. Because God did not come to give us a tune-up. He came to give us an overhaul. He didn't come to just patch us up and put retread tires on our already worn out lives. He came to give us new life and to put us on a new road of faith and obedience and joy and love. God came not to just fix us, but to change us. So what does it mean to be fully surrendered to Christ? First of all, it is essential, not optional. If I want the blessings of God, if I want answers to my prayers, if I want to be all that God saved me to be, then it is essential and not optional that I am surrendered to Christ. Lord, I'm yours. What do you want? My yes is yes to you. 
Not a debate, not an argument, not a discussion, not a negotiation. It's just yes. Secondly, it's a process, but it shouldn't take forever. It's a process, but it shouldn't take forever. I mean, it, say, okay, I got to start somewhere, but you ought to get there sooner or later. Number three, God works in and through us, but we are to cooperate. We are to cooperate. God has put resources in our hands, talents in our hands, time in our hands, and those are put into our hands so that we can cooperate with God in how it's used in his plan for this world. Number four, we can't compartmentalize our lives. We cannot compartmentalize our lives, meaning you can't say, well, I, I read my Bible every day, but I don't give. I, I pray every day, but I don't give. I always say a blessing in a public restaurant, but I don't give. Or, or I, I give, but I don't have a quiet time. I give, but I never read my Bible. You can't compartmentalize your life. Our lives are not silos that sit side by side, never connected. It's one thing. Number five, what God says is always about relationships and community. What God says is always about relationships and community. Whether it was the nation of Israel or the church, the church is called a body, it's called a building, it's called a bride, but it's also called a family. And when we give and when we serve, when we do what God has told us to do, when we give of ourselves to God, which is essential, not optional, then we are a part of making the family better, our relationships better, our community better. Number six, it is complete surrender to the will of God, not multiple choice. And number seven, there's no area that should be off limits. There's no area that should be off limits. There's, there shouldn't be anything in our lives where we say, God, don't talk to me about that. Don't, don't leave, leave that alone. Don't talk to me about that. That's, that's my business. That's between me and myself. You, you just kind of stay out of that. You see, the word Lord is used 432 times in the Bible. The word Savior is used about 34 times in the Bible. He is Lord first and foremost. Rarely in the Bible, I think once or twice in the Bible, do you see Savior and Lord. It's always Lord and Savior. You see, the, from the Bible's perspective, He cannot be your Savior if He is not your Lord. He didn't come just to get you out of hell and into heaven. He came to take over. And so if He is Lord, that means He's boss. That means He's in charge. I'm going to use Ken as an illustration here for a minute. When Ken was in the military and he was a captain in the Marines, he gave an order to anybody under him, and it wasn't like, I don't know, you know what? I don't like Captain Bevel that much. I like the last captain I served under. I just don't think I'm going to do that. Man, you, yes, sir. I mean, it's pop and yes, sir, and go do it. You know what? He's got a harder job today because he works for volunteers who just shrug their shoulders and go, I don't know, I may show up, I may not. Why is the army of the Lord less disciplined than the Marines? We're in a spiritual battle for the souls of men. Why is the army of the Lord less disciplined than the Marines? We ought to be the most disciplined, 
fighting unit in the world because we're in a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But if he's not Lord, then I just say, well, you know what? I know you asked me to do that. And by the way, I like you, but I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. And don't you come talk to me when I don't do it because I'm, I'm just not going to do it and you leave me alone or I won't do it again. And sometimes we do the Lord that way. We're selective in our obedience, but we want him to be unlimited in his giving of himself. So I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14, second book in the New Testament, Matthew's gospel, then Mark. Um, one of the most powerful messages I ever heard on these verses was by Bob Bakke at Refresh a year ago about uh, Mary in the alabaster jar, Mark 14. Now I want you to remember the context of this. Jesus is on his way to the cross. Mary is going to pour out all she has. She's going to pour out the best that she has. She's going to pour out her future and she's going to pour out probably her dowry. So this is it. Everything, she's emptied the bank. This is where all of her stuff is, is in this alabaster jar. So verse 3, while he was in Bethany, the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. Now we know on this side of the cross that she was anointing Christ for his crucifixion and for his burial. They didn't know it, but she knew it. And she gave him her best. One author writes, an alabaster jar, we all have one. They come in different shapes and sizes. And sealed within is all that we prize, our treasured earthly possessions. Occasionally, we break the seal, remove the lid, and share as we know we ought. But we do so carefully, reservedly, with control, anxious all the while to put the lid back on. So much of life is spent preserving and conserving what we hold in our alabaster jar. So here's a question before we move to the last point. What are you doing with your jar? What are you doing with your jar? Are you, you got a lid on it and you're making sure you've got all you want and all you need or are you pouring it out on Jesus? Is it measured or hesitant that you give or is it extravagant? Is your first thought, how much can I do? Or is your first thought, how little can I do and get by? Lastly, truth can change your life if you listen and respond. Truth not acted on will harden your heart. Truth not applied will make you analytical, but truth received will make you tender to what God wants to do in and through your life. So I want to ask you to turn to the fifth book of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26. This is an, an offering of first fruits. 
they are in the land and God is giving them instructions about what to do and how to give. Now, this is not the annual first fruit offering that you see in Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. This is a, a different first fruit offering, the idea of giving God the best first. And so there are four things here. If you found Deuteronomy 26, I just want to give you four quick words here. Truth is to be applied. Truth has consequences. Old Testament, New Testament, truth is truth. All truth is God's truth. Truth has to be applied. It has consequences. Revelation demands a response and doctrine demands duty. So when God teaches us something, even though we don't give like the Jews gave, we don't have the sacrificial system like they had, the principle is still the same for us, to give the first and the best. Deuteronomy 26 and verse 1. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you. By the way, notice he keeps saying, the Lord gave you the land, the Lord gave you the land. He says it twice. And you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So this is a particular specific offering. And why was it brought to the priest and why was it put in a basket and why was it put on an altar? Because it was an opportunity to witness to others that you had been obedient. So the giving of the first fruit in that basket was a witness to others of your obedience. So giving was a witness, not just an act of worship, it was a witness. And God instructed the people, when you see the way I bless the land, and when you see the blessings that come forth, you need to honor me and when you honor me by giving this, what you're saying is God is first and foremost in my life. He's first. So what is it? It's a confession of God's goodness. To give the first fruit offering was a confession of the goodness of God that God had not only given them the land, but they were able to eat off of that land. It was an act of worship. They brought it to the priest. They didn't just sit around the table and say, well, Junior, it's your time to pray. Why don't you pray and thank God for these blessings? They, they brought it as an act of worship, and it was a declaration of dependence. And if you look at the history of Israel, every time they did what God told them to do with the land, he blessed them, and when they didn't, they suffered. God wanted them to understand. God wanted this image, this reminder, this memorial stone idea in their hearts and in their heads that when you do this, you're confessing that I am good. You're showing the world that you believe in my goodness. It's an act of worship. It's a declaration of dependence. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. But then this is a foreshadowing of Matthew 6, 33. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Seek him first. 26 times in the Bible you read the phrase on the first day. On the first day. Something about the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Something about the first day of the week. Something about first things and first fruits matters to God because if he's first, then he's never second and trying harder. If he's first. He's not trying to get to the national championship game next year because he didn't make it this year. He's just first. There's no poll. There's no opinion. He's just first. 1 Corinthians 16, 1, and we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each of one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So, first thing about that offering in 1 Corinthians 16, it was a collection for the Jerusalem church, which was very poor and in the middle of a famine. So it's, the collection was others-centered. Others-centered. And not only was it others-centered, it was a sign of unity because he had said, I told the church at Galatia to do this, and I'm telling you to do the same thing. So it was a sign of unity that we are in this together. Now when you read Paul's letters and you see him talk about giving and offerings and sacrifices, he uses nine different Greek words in the context of giving. Some of them relate to grace, some of them relate to freedom, some of them relate to fellowship. But Paul would have known this Jewish saying, and with this We'll close. How can a man show that he is a good man except by being generous? How can a man show that he is a good man except by being generous? I try to always keep some cash in my pocket. I try to never, now I know there's a whole generation behind me, they never carry cash. They just use a debit card, which somebody out there is trying to steal the number off of right now. But I always try to carry cash with me. And one of the things I do every time I'm out and every time I'm around, one of the prayers I just whisper to God is, God, is there anybody I need to bless today? Is there anybody I need to do anything for today? Is there anybody I need to do something for today. It'll change the way you look at people. It'll change the way you look at money. Now you know my favorite place to eat is Pancake Pantry. There'll be one right inside the gates of glory. truth of the matter is, I could enjoy Christmas if I never got anything, because I've already gotten more than I deserve. But what brings joy to Christmas is giving. And what will bring you joy in the next year is learning that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's not about the amount. 
It's about the heart. It's never about the amount. It's about the heart. Let's pray together. I want to ask you with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, as you move into this new year, what is it that needs to change? What is it that needs to be adjusted in your serving, in your time, with your talents, with your giving, your study of the Bible, your prayer time? What, what is it that needs to be adjusted? What is it that needs to change? And every one of us have an opportunity in this next 60 seconds to make a decision, to resolve to listen to God, to be resolved to listen to God. Lord, this year, I'm going to get up every day and say, Lord, I'm listening. Tell me what you want me to do. Lord, I'm listening. Tell me how you want me to act. Lord, I'm listening. Tell me, tell me what you want me to give. Lord, I'm listening. Tell me how I can serve. Lord, I'm listening. Tell me. And I'm resolved to listen to you and to do what you tell me to do. Father, you have given much to us. Nothing we could do could pay you back for the death of Christ on a cross for us and the resurrection from the grave and the hope of heaven when we die. Nothing could change. But we can better appropriate gratitude. We can be better at grace giving. We can be better at serving if we just listen to you. Lord, we've listened to our own lame excuses a long time. We need to listen to you. Father, speak to our hearts so that our giving is a witness and an act of worship and a delight. We pray it in Jesus' name.